what matters most. What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. These days, Jackie Louise Shrewell is one of the biggest names in the music industry, but by her own admission, she's no singer. For more than 10 years, she's been working tirelessly to put the people behind the music back on the record. She is passionate about folk getting the recognition they deserve for the work they've done and is building up her company, Jackster, to be the most comprehensive source of official music credits in the world. She's obviously doing something right. Jackster raised about $5 million in its recent listing on the Australian Stock Exchange. A girl from Darlinghurst taking on the world one credit at a time. So, Jackie, what the heck is Jackster? (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, If you think back to vinyl and you'd look at the back of the jacket and it would tell you when you looked at a track who produced the song, who were the songwriters, who played guitars on a track, who did the backing vocals, that's called the credits or the liner notes. And with the age of digital music, it's all disappeared. So what we have done with Jackster is build the world's largest official music database of all of that beautiful information. So what you're doing effectively is making that encyclopedia available for artists and fans and and anybody that works in the industry. You know, working in television, you know how important your credits are. It's how you get your next job. In the creative sphere of music, if people don't get their credit, if you don't know that that assistant engineer worked on that track or that mastering engineer, how does he get his next gig if he's not being properly credited? And with vinyl, it's great, but it's one-dimensional because all you can do is look at the sleeve. With our product, you can actually see everybody that's credited on a track, click on their name and see absolutely everything else that they've worked on. If you go in and you have a look at Adele's Skyfall, it has 85 performers on the track. 85 individual musicians worked on the recording of Skyfall. Blows my mind. There's this one cello player, Claire, that we clicked on. When we clicked on her, we found out that she'd worked on over 900 different recordings. And it's everything from Rag and Bone Man to Skyfall. So how does she get her credits and her work if people don't know that she exists? And I guess it's validation, isn't it? It's Mm. verification. Absolutely. You know, with Wikipedia, pretty much anyone can go in and edit the content. I could have a woozy of a Wikipedia page if I wanted to, but um, I'm an industry professional, so I don't. I don't even think I have a Wikipedia page, actually. In regards to, and this is an important piece of the conversation, is it being official? What we've done is we've gone out And it's taken a long time, but we've negotiated with all the labels and the publishers and the industry associations to get a direct feed of the data from them. So it's coming from the custodians of the data, which means it's as accurate as humanly possible. So I can't go in and claim that I produced Skyfall. I can't go in and say that I played drums on Waiting on the World to Change by John Mayer. I just can't make stuff up because it's coming from the label and I have no way of editing that information. So let's roll this back a bit, okay? (laughs) You started a few years ago and you're now ASX listed. Mm. How did a chick from Darlinghurst decide (laughs) that the world needed a global credit list, an official database, and what made you think you could get it done? Honestly, if I had known what it would take, there is no way I would have done it because it has been... Aside from giving the eulogy at my father's funeral, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. 
no joke about it and no reservations in saying that. It's been six and a half years since I've been working on it full time, but I first had the idea in 2006. And that was when I transitioned from working in the film industry to working in music. And prior to working in film, I'd worked in television. And in both of those industries, your credit is absolutely how you get your next job. It's your calling card. Oh my gosh. I mean, I started in the green room at a, at a television network ended up working as a production assistant, worked my way up to researcher. I started as a production assistant. <laughs> we all start somewhere. We're going to start somewhere. Yeah. Here. <laughs> but it's it's how people know to hire you. Mm. You know, is she resilient? Is she, and it doesn't matter if it's a he or a she. You know, are they resilient? Are they good at their job? Are they punctual? Do they turn up? Do they take direction? Are they team players? Absolutely. That's so critical, especially in the creative industries because, you know, we're all moving quickly. And I transitioned to the music industry after having co-produced a, a large number of music videos. I worked at an amazing record label, EMI, and I had the benefit of working across two of their labels, Virgin and Capital. And it was 2006. So to put that in perspective, Ask Jeeves was one of the number one search engines. I remember that. It doesn't <laughs> exist anymore, does it? I think it's just called Jeeves now. So that was the biggest search engine and then there was MySpace was just everything. If you wanted to find out anything, you went to MySpace. I'd come from film where we had um, IMDb, International Movie Database, and that's where we researched who a gaffer was on a film, who was the costume designer, who was their assistant. The best boy. Yeah, the best boy, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, who's the best boy? And then I transitioned over to working at a label and I had been asked to work on The Crane Wife by an amazing indie band out of America called The Decemberists, who I was not familiar with at the time. And I really wanted to know the band members, like what position they were in the band, did they work with anybody else who mastered the album so that when I was presenting it to the promo at the marketing meeting later that week, I could really give a full picture behind what had gone into making that album. And you hit a brick wall. I hit a brick wall researching it. The band's incredible. I drove all of my colleagues insane because I had that that uh, <laughs> I had that album on repeat all day long. I loved it, still do. But I wanted to know who did what so I could build the picture. And there wasn't an official resource and it took me six and a half hours to research it, which did not feel productive. I wanted something, almost an almanac that I could go to where I could get all the information so that they could then go into market and on-sell it. Kind of a bizarre omen, really, six and a half hours and then six and a half years. It took you to get it done. <laughs> I hadn't even put that together. But, you know, I first came across you a couple of years ago and I was blown away about how hard it was for you to make this happen. Oh. Now, not only knocking on doors in Hollywood mm. and global music houses, the music world was, was changing, you know, cataclysmically really with the introduction of Spotify and everything else. Let's just look at how did you get finance? I mean, who believed oh. in you? Yeah, first and foremost, my um, amazing husband, Louis, who's a songwriter record producer and the co-founder of the company. Uh, when my um, beloved dad passed away from Alzheimer's, it was, you know, it was one of those moments that is very defining. It was in my life anyway in terms of, okay, we really aren't here forever. And what do you want to do? Yeah. And, I, and at that point, I had been talking to Louis about the idea for almost six years. And what had stopped me were two things, most importantly, I did not believe I could do it. So there was imposter syndrome and I didn't believe I had the network to do it. So six years passed and I went back into film and then everything happened with dad. And I, oh my gosh, I'll never forget. 
<laughs> being at the nursing home when he had Alzheimer's and my dad was, oh, God, he loved music. So he was a, a jazz drummer back in his day and my mum was an amateur singer. So I... It's in the genes. Yeah, I was born to Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder and I Aww. think it was about 10 when I realised that he hadn't <laughs> written it about me because <laughs> it had always been our song. Yeah. But... Um, I remember being in the nursing home and we had made a playlist for Dad of his favourite music and whenever we would play it to him, we got him back. And sometimes we got him back for 10 seconds, sometimes we got him back for 10 minutes. But there'd be this moment where all of a sudden we could see him and he could see us and we'd, like, rush in. Dad, you know, oh, how I, oh, this is happening with Louie and this is happening with Mum and, and, you know, and then he'd go again. And then we might not get him back for the rest of our visit. It, it was magical. And mum had said to me, we need to play him some new music. And I said, we can't play him new music, mum. He won't get it. We have to play him what he knows. So mum and I had a full-blown fight in front of dad and she's, play him Get Lucky by Daft Punk. And my mum did it in such a way, I'm like, I'm not messing with her. <laughs> so I get my phone out on Spotify, play it, and dad, never heard this song before, just started to groove. And he was dancing and he was doing all of his, you know, bespoke moves. moves. (laughs) And mum and I have floods of tears streaming down our face. And for me it was such a moment of the power of music. He'd never heard that song before and it didn't matter. And witnessing that moment, I said to Louis, I really think we need to do this. I have no idea how to do it. I don't even know how to make a start, but I think we need to do it. I was between jobs because I had left my previous role, which was a senior executive role in an entertainment company, to spend time with my dad before he did pass away because you just don't, you never get that time back. You never do. So Louis said, look, I think we can afford to do this for four months. I can keep us going for four months and that four months turned into two and a half years of us funding everything, self-funding trips. Whenever Louis would do a songwriting trip to London or Stockholm or wherever I would tag along, I'd meet anybody, literally anyone. What were you doing? Were you just pitching the idea? Were you trying to see where you got traction? I had started to kind of piece together what I thought the platform would look like and operationally how each page would work, and I did a ton of research. I would meet with absolutely everybody I could to ask their advice on what the product should have in it, and then I did effectively due diligence, 269 presentations or meetings with the industry to ask people what does it need? What is it missing? Would you use it? <laughs> 269 meetings worldwide. Yes. And then on top of that, I was starting to meet with investors and I did 50 presentations before I met the amazing couple who were the first people to get involved and to back it. And that was two and a half years into the journey. Can I ask how much did they tip in? Their first investment was a quarter of a million dollars and... <laughs> I'll never forget that meeting. Was that Christmas or you just went, this is the start? No, it was. It felt like Christmas. And that first quarter of a million lasts, lasted six months. And you could pay the rent. We could hire an office. Yeah. We could actually hire people. It was no longer <laughs> me in isolation working on it. I remember that meeting. The day before I had met a girlfriend of mine, I needed her to teach me how to use MailChimp. She said, you know, how's the raise going? And I may or may not have used an expletive to describe how the raise was going. And she said, you should meet my brother-in-law. He's a serial investor. I'm thinking, that'd be good. (laughs) You know, people who are listening to this today will will probably forget this was before the cloud. Absolutely. And and actually the reason I was getting her to teach me MailChimp was because 
if I didn't have enough on my plate at the time, I was starting a networking community for women in the music industry called Women in Music Sydney. What made you do that at the same time, you mad woman? Well, I read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, and (laughs) I'd talked to a girlfriend about it and we had discussed how great it would be to have a networking group for women. And she did like a preliminary version of it. And that night my dad had the stroke that led to him passing away five days later. So a year to the day after the first event, I said to her, look, do you mind if I pick up the baton with this and do it? She said, yes. So she showed me and then asked me about the fundraising. And 48 hours later, I met him at the time, by the way, going through an unsuccessful round of IVF. So I'm hopped up on every hormone you can imagine. And if you had said boo to me then, I would have burst into tears. So I meet him emotionally drawn out and exhausted. And he says to me, okay, you've grossly underestimated how long this is going to take and you've grossly underestimated how much it's going to cost. You need double the amount of money and double the amount of time. And of course, in my naivety, I'm like, that's not true. We'll get it done in a year and a half. And uh, it won't cost that amount of money. And he goes, Jackie, I'm in for a quarter of a million. You pass my due diligence in the next six weeks, I'll get you all the money. And the most elegant, refined thing that I could respond with was come again because I literally couldn't believe this was the meeting that started the investment. After two and a half years and 50 presentations and 50 no's. Is that investor still involved? He's amazing, yeah. They're a very special couple and they've been really patient because this, we, we really thought this would be live three years ago and, you know, it's taken a lot longer. So spell it out for me. Why six and a half years? The first two and a half years were me working on my own and then we got the first round of investment and then it was the conversations with the data partners. So there's a bit of a rule when you're doing business in America that it's at the third or the fifth meeting when you're in front of people that the business really, the conversations really begin and shift. And if you think about it, we're on the corner of Oxford and Crown Street in Darlinghurst and here's this Australian woman walking in to the Grammys and Sony and Universal and Warner, the biggest music companies in the world, and saying, could you give us your data, please? Uh, We're going to build an official database and we're going to credit everyone. Could you give us the crown jewels, please? I mean, we're not taking song files, we're not touching sensitive information like song splits. But we are asking them for an extraordinary amount of information. So when we signed our contract with the Grammys, it was it was three years, five months and two days since my first meeting with them. And when we signed the contract at that point, I'd done 16 face-to-face meetings with them. Now, none of those happened in Sydney. I had to fly to LA for all of those meetings. And it's just because it takes time. Were all the music houses loath to share the data? It wasn't that they were loath to share the data. When I started the journey, the industry hadn't been through enough pain with metadata to go, this needs to be a priority. It's six and a half years later and everybody's at the same pain pressure point with how important data is because it drives decisions. It's the new oil. And with the evolution of smart speakers, I heard a statistic, it was last year or the year before, where they were saying that 68% of requests to smart speakers are about music. And sometimes the results that come back are according to Wikipedia. So data being accurate is really important. Whether you're a journalist, whether you work in A&R, artist and repertoire, and you're trying to develop an artist, if you're a manager, if you work at a record label, if you're in publishing, 
getting that data right is really critical. And the reason why I, I do not believe it has been done previously is twofold. I really believe that technology is moving so quickly that the industry had not had time to focus on it, even though it was a, a wish list thing. And second of all, it has been so complex to get everybody across the line that I think people thought it would just be too hard. But I really believe in the importance of credits. It's personal to me and I'm deeply passionate about it and so I just didn't give up. There were times I wanted to, no question. There have been absolutely afternoons and nights where I have been on the floor of our apartment in the fetal position crying because it was so damn hard. But then... You know, you get that out of your system and you wake up the next day and you feel a little better and you're like, okay, what are the three things I can do right now to move it forward? And it's incredible how every time I'd have one of those on my knees moment, the next day I'd get an email from Sony or Universal or the Grammys and be like, yes, (laughs) this is why we never give up. My mum would be like, never, ever, ever, ever give up. Hey there, sorry to interrupt your podcast, but once you've finished up here, why don't you head over to Hammer at Home? You'll hear from me, Barry Dubois. I'll be talking to all sorts of interesting people from all different walks of life about their homes, families, all sorts of stuff. Start by giving my chat with Dr. Chris Brown a listen. I reckon it's a lot of laughs. Take it easy. Catch you soon. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Where does the name Jackster come from? I mean, your name's Jackie. I know. So um, I'm not a narcissistic bitch that's named the company after herself. (laughs) My husband actually named the company after the Jacket Stars. Vinyl came in a jacket and the people in the industry are stars, so jacket stars, and we wanted it to be a verb. So, you know, you Shazam it, you Google it, you Jackster it. And we had the coolest moment in New York four weeks ago. APRA did a member's presentation. We were presenting Jackster and about five different people got out their mobile phones and said, I Jackstered myself and I'm in here. I found it very hard not to do the ugly cry in that moment (laughs) because it was an extraordinary moment, you know. The crystallisation of a dream and years of hard work. Exactly. So the goal is that the name becomes a verb. How do you make money? Jackster itself, so and it's J-A-X-S-T-A dot com, is a free website. Anybody can go to that, like imdb.com. You can just go there and anybody can search anything. But then we have a product we're rolling out uh, in the last quarter of this year, which is a B2B, and it's industry-specific. And it is, if you will, like a LinkedIn meets Bloomberg kind of application for our business. Nothing like it exists. That'll be our first revenue stream. And then the first quarter of next year, we'll be rolling out our commercial API. So that's where 
we take all of those beautiful credits and then we will on-sell those to, say, a digital service provider. So it could be Apple, it could be Spotify, it could be whomever. And then they use that data to improve their user experience. So right now, if you go into some of the streaming services, you can see who co-wrote the songs and who produced them. But what you can't do is click on those individuals' names and see everything else that they've worked on. You mentioned before about your dad and it really highlighted the fact that music is the global language, isn't it? I always say that we're um, fluent in two languages, our mother language of music, and I will never, ever forget seeing news footage from CNN when Nelson Mandela passed away and at his compound four warring fractions of different African tribes descended on the outskirts of his compound and all the police were terrified that something was going to happen and instead they all started singing their tribe song and unbelievably they ended up harmonising. You know, if I read a book or if I watch a film or if I watch a television series, you know, you've got to go through the whole book, the whole television series, the whole film to get the full picture. You can hear one chord or one bar of a piece of music and be choked up or feel anthemic, feel powerful, feel angry. I was watching Straight Outta Compton on the plane and their famous song, F the Police, and I could not stop moving in the chair and I didn't realise I was singing the words out loud until the passenger nudged me. But it, it did make me feel riled up. It's the power of music. It's, it's incredible. It can move people so quickly. Have you got any competitors out there? Everyone's got competitors, absolutely. There are some amazing websites that exist that have really great databases. The difference is they're crowdsourced. And where we're separate is that our information comes officially from the source so it's as accurate as it can be. Even though they are competitors, we talk to each other, we're friendlies. So, uh, so far that's a good space to be in. And I know as we grow and evolve, there'll be other companies that come into the fray and it's really up to us to make sure that we continue to innovate and we continue to do R&D research and development and just constantly make the platform better. What are the anecdotes like from those in the biz that, you know, they meet you in a corridor or in a, in a lift on the way to the Grammys and you're the woman that's making the almanac. You're responsible mm. for actually giving them validation and arguably an income stream. It is actually a tremendous responsibility for myself and the team to get it right. The overwhelming response is thank you, followed by this is a total game changer. And that's been, there have been a couple of moments actually where it's been really emotional talking to creators of music who have said, you have literally just validated my existence. To watch people go on and search their profile and then copy their URL and send it to people. And then also with friends too, you know, where someone will go, oh, man, you didn't produce that. And then they can actually go, I actually did. Thank you very much. (laughs) I mean, that makes me emotional because Mm. it's the industry's responsibility to, to find those people and give them credit. And you've done that, you know, and it must mean the world. It it does. I mean, the emails that we're receiving, the phone calls, the text messages, the Instagram messages, the Facebook messages that Louis and I are getting in particular. You know, before we went live, I asked a number of our partners if they'd record a message for the team to congratulate them on going live. And, oh, man, those messages. I cried and cried and cried before I could send them on to the team because I had to get it out of my system. Look, your public profile has exploded really in the last 18 months. Are you ready for that sort of recognition and validation yourself? 
<laughs> Every time I do an interview or anything like this, it's just not, it's never where I thought I'd have to be in the journey. I always wanted the product to be there. I understand for getting investors on board, you have to be the face of the business. I just never realised that I had to be a part of that and I'd always much rather push the team in front, Louis in front, the product in front because to me that's what it's about. So I'm still not comfortable with it. I don't know that I ever will be. That's quite a typical entrepreneurial part of the journey though. Have you had any tools, any tricks that have got you over the line or do you just focus on the task at hand and and just do the job? I'll often speak to somebody before I do anything that I have to be in front of the business just to A, calm me down and B, remind me why I'm doing it. And then I have to remind myself that I control my thoughts. So sometimes if I'm on my own, I will literally pew, pew, like shoot the bad thoughts away. And then <laughs> you visually shoot them out. Visu- out I, I verbally do it too. If I'm on my own, if I am in an environment where there are other people around, I imagine me doing what I just showed you that I do. <laughs> but it works. Yeah. You know, and then I just have to remind myself to, to own it and go forward. And I think the other thing that's been really important for me is giving myself permission to know that I don't have all the answers and I never will. And it's not about having all the answers. It's about knowing who to call to get them. Sounds to me like you've learned a lot about leadership on the way. Constantly and you never stop. What sort of leader are you? (laughs) That's a good question. Should Um, I ask your team? Yeah, what kind of leader am I? Have Um, you gone through that process, you know, where you've had to self-evaluate? Have you done all that with yourself and your staff? All the time. There was a conference call that happened this morning where I noted something that I said and did and I made a note to myself, reframe that next time. Don't deliver it that way because I saw the react. We were on a Zoom and I could see the reaction of the team and it all made sense in my head but we were short of time and I didn't have the ability to provide the full picture. There just wasn't the time to back up the statement that I made with detail. I've definitely learned a lot. I read all the time and I read a lot of business books. I listen to podcasts. I've learned a lot about managing people and how to do it with grace, how to be firm but fair, how to be kind and how to be human. So first and foremost, we are all of those things as a company and an organisation. I'm always impressing on the team, be aware, be aware how you speak to each other. Be kind, be considerate to the management team, be firm but fair. You know, sometimes people do need a bit of a smack and you've got to give it to them and it's not fun, but do it in a way that you're not crushing a human, you're just giving them some feedback that they need so that they can be better at the job that they've been hired to do. You started out with one, arguably two people, given your husband was always there. Yeah. How many have you got now? This is pretty cool. So we have 23 in Australia. We have three internationals on our team. I went to America a month ago, the day after we launched the product. And when I came back into the office on Tuesday, we had four new staff. <laughs> it's, like, like, it's like we added water and the team exploded. And that might not sound like a lot to a lot of people, but considering I started this on two Um, reclaimed, shall we say, filing cabinets that had been put out on the street and a piece of plywood on top of that as a desk. That's how Jackster started in our study. It's, that does not get lost on me for a second. 
Talk us through the evolution between Apple Music and Spotify. How did that affect you? Well, it was interesting because I was working at EMI when I think it was 2006, the iPhone came out and I literally thought that was the most exciting thing aside from the iPod that had ever happened. And it was a huge shift for us. Uh, A lot changed and very quickly Mm. there was an immediate uptake. Same with the piracy. I mean, the piracy, in my opinion, I likened it to if you go into a supermarket, you don't say, I'm just going to take this carton of milk and I'm going to take the bread and the baked beans and the butter and if I like them, I'll come back and pay for them. But if I don't, I'm just taking them. I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. That's it, isn't it? (laughs) How is that remotely okay? Mm. I know there were elements of the industry that needed to change, but piracy always upset me, whether it was film or television or music, because they're the industries I worked in and I couldn't believe that people were discrediting my my, my role and my, my colleagues' roles. So iTunes and, and Apple Music and the iPod and the iPhone were incredible and then Spotify came along and kind of blew all of our minds away because all of a sudden we could stream music. Hang on, what, we don't have to download it? I don't understand. What, it just lives in a cloud forever? Where we are now, I mean, our industry has constantly evolved from the gramophone to the Edison cylinder to, you know, vinyl to CDs to tape decks, CDs, you know, MP3s to now streaming. I mean, my God, what's going to be next? Now we just tell a speakerphone, play me, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it, it does. Like, that's incredible. It is. You probably know what's next, but you're not going to share it. I actually don't. I wish I did. <laughs> I'd be developing it right now. But, uh, you know, I we've been through a lot as an industry. We, we almost ran off a cliff and it was really scary. And now it's gone in a completely different direction. And I believe it's because music has been opened up to the world. What do you think of the Australian music scene at the moment? Oh, my God, I could not be more excited. We have so much talent in this nation. I don't know what we put in the water here, but (laughs) my God, whether it's an artist, whether it's songwriters or producers or it's the incredible teams that work behind the machines of music, I don't think a lot of people know that for the average album to get to market, 250 different individuals will touch that album to get it to market. From the assistant engineer in the recording studio all the way through to you doing an interview with with whoever the talent or the artist or the songwriter may be, all the way through the music produce, music video producers to all of the staff at the record labels, we have the most incredible prolific industry. All you have to do is look at the ARIA Awards each year or the APRA AMCOS Awards to see how much talent we have. Who do you like to listen to? Oh, God, how long do we have? Uh, Australian artists? Dean Lewis is awesome. I love Gang of Views. They're my favourite band. I should name some amazing amazing um, Aussies. Chloe, I love Chloe. Her song Low Blow, I am mildly obsessed with. Love myself a bit of Keith Urban. <laughs> He's <laughs> fabulous. Also love Khalid. He's an American artist that I'm quietly obsessed with. Uh, Coldplay, love John Mayer. I think he is a legend. Sarah Ahrens is incredible. Uh, Joni Mitchell, Adele. Oh, my God, Adele. Oh, she's the queen. Being married to Louis, I've had the privilege to meet 
and they have become our friends, Guy Sebastian, Jessica Malboy and Diana Rivers, who for my money are three of the best voices, not just in Australia, but in the world. And if you hear any one of those individuals sing a cappella, they're all one take wonders. They never need to do a second take of anything. Just exceptional. Can you sing or play an instrument? God, I wish I could play an instrument. I was gifted half a voice. I know quite a few CEOs and and they say to me one thing that a lot of people don't really recognise is the weight of carrying the business and people. (laughs) What's that like? I'm still adjusting to that. (laughs) It's a really serious responsibility. I'm responsible right now for almost 30 people's salaries. We have shareholders now and investors and the industry who have trusted us to do this and build this. So it's heavy at times. And sometimes it can be lonely too, because especially being public, I have to be very careful what I say in public environments and also with friends. So many of our friends have bought shares in the company, which we didn't know. And then they'd be like, oh, I'm a shareholder now. I'd be like, no, note to self. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, it, is a, it is a tremendous responsibility. So the transition from a startup to a listed company mm. is massive. Massive. And, again, often underestimated. Critically, what were the key things you had to learn when you moved from a startup to a listed company? Uh, first thing I did was the AICD course, the Australian Institute of Company Directors course for sitting on a board and being a publicly listed company. That was critical. My God, that was a massive undertaking. You do your homework. Good on you. Oh, I, ha- I have to. Preparation is everything. Uh, there was that. There was 400 conversations with our prospective board until we officially became a board. Hundreds of hours of conversations with our lawyers and getting up to speed, (laughs) learning what everything means. What is an Appendix 3B? All of these, the reportings that you have to do. When I did some reading on you, diversity seemed really important to you at a company level and at a board level. Why so? Well, we're 54% of the population, so we deserve a voice, uh, first and foremost. And also, how can you run a company in this day and age if you don't have every voice accounted for? You've got to have a level playing field. We need all voices at the table and it's every level of diversity. And so you're pretty proud of the diversity and the mix you've got in staff and at board level. I am. I'm really, really proud. And you draw on it quite a bit to deliver better outcomes, you think? I absolutely think so because you have a, you just have a better level of conversation. You've talked about the power of the sisterhood and the power of the network. Can you flesh that out a bit for me now? So at the first Women in Focus conference that I attended, it was 2015, <laughs> talk about imposter syndrome. I walked into that room and I, my first thought was, what the, am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be here. That woman's the CEO of that company. That woman's the CFO of that company. And, and half the things that people were talking about I hadn't experienced yet because we weren't there. We'd just been funded. I'd literally just signed the lease to our office and I'd hired two staff. <laughs> and then I, you know, head off to Noosa to the conference. But I met some exceptional women at that conference and two in particular, Anna Shepherd and Susie Jacobs. The three of us became a bona fide tribe. And I owe so much to both of those women because after the conference, I had a series of really intense tests by the business. 
there were a whole bunch of different things that happened and I would go to them weekly. We'd have Saturday morning breakfasts together and we did that for almost two years. You could download in confidence. We all did. It was incredible. And they're my go-to when I need advice, when I need the truth. They're, they're my sounding board. I'm not always convinced men understand that <laughs> women's tribe. I mean, when you meet a woman you like, you just know, what is that? How do you define that? You know, <laughs> it's really interesting. This is going to sound so silly, but in the Twilight movies and books, there's this thing called imprinting. When you meet somebody for the first time, you imprint on them if you really connect. And it's like this thing of you almost adopting that person into your life and your family. And I like the terminology imprinting because I think when you meet good people, it's an instinctual thing that you can't really explain, but you just know and you just know I want that. I want to be in that person's orbit. Women in the music industry, you've set that up. What's the take-up been like and the feedback? Oh, it's been incredible. So I started with my list of women that I knew in the industry, which was 40, and now we have over a 1,000 followers on Facebook. It's been incredible. The events just increase in number every year, but it's been really special getting people together and getting them talking. What's their main gripe in the industry as women? So I think recognition is a big thing and I think it's very interesting how people are genuinely afraid to give credit where credit's due. I don't think there's anything better that you can do as a human being to credit the people you work with for their contribution to a project. Why do you have to take it all for yourself? I don't, I've never understood that. Uh, opportunity. Sometimes we all get overlooked because people just have a vision in their head of who we are and what we do and what we're capable of. So the ability to step forward into the arena and throw your hat into the ring is really important and it's so daunting to do. It's been really cool meeting you in person. Here's this woman from Sydney taking on the world and winning. Good on you. Congratulations Thank for you. everything you've achieved. I know the next six months to 12 months is going to be bigger than everything you've experienced so far, but congratulations so and well done. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. G'day, I'm Matt Burke, and available now is my brand new podcast, Talking Rugby with me. During the Rugby World Cup, we'll be hitting the ground running as Network 10 brings you all the action and excitement from Japan. This is the rugby podcast you'll want to listen to as we'll be having exclusive chats with players and coaching staff to give you an understanding of the Wallabies' mindset during the tournament. Fun, light-hearted and entertaining. There's always time for a laugh. Then there's time to be serious. Talking Rugby with Matt Burke, available now. 